We are continuing with the reading of excerpts from the book Legendary Lake Pond Array by Jane Fritz and Friends, and read by Jane Fritz. Area 3, downtown Sandpoint, and west of the Long Bridge to Dover. Overview The Long Bridge that crosses Lake Pond Array is more than a highway over the water leading to and from Sandpoint. It is also where people tend to notice that the lake starts to narrow to the west, and so over time, the Long Bridge has become the commonly accepted boundary between Lake Ponderay and the Ponderay River. Even though the natural channel of water that existed prior to higher water levels caused by the Albany Falls Dam was a meandering river only 30 to 40 feet wide and 33 feet deep, still, Many people consider the waters west of the Long Bridge to be part of Lake Ponderay all the way to Dover. From the Long Bridge to Dover, both riverbanks are mostly private property, but there are a couple public sites worth visiting. While in Sandpoint, you can stroll from downtown to the 3rd Avenue Pier and enjoy watching an osprey fish the waters by day or spot a falling star on a warm summer night. A few blocks farther west along Ontario Street leads you to War Memorial Field in Lakeview Park, the location of the Bonner County Historical Museum and the native plant Arboretum. Memorial Field is also the site of the outdoor music festival held every August, the Festival at Sandpoint, a magnet for thousands of music lovers. Anecdota, Long Bridge Swim A long-distance open-water swim is something that Shauna Perry had never done before, let alone one that was nearly two miles long. A lover of fresh water, she decided to do the Long Bridge Swim. Shauna and her husband Laird relocated to the Sandpoint area from Seattle. The 2006 swim was a way for her to experience the spirit of community in their new home in a unique and exciting way. She did a little training in the Sandpoint Athletic Club pool and in the lake at City Beach in Sunnyside. When the hot August Saturday morning arrived, she was ready. At the south end of the Long Bridge, Shauna and hundreds of other swimmers, girls and boys, women and men, mothers and daughters, fathers and sons, ranging in age from 8 to 84, donned bathing caps with their swim numbers painted on. Swimmers came from as far away as the East Coast, but most swimmers were from Idaho, Washington, and other western states. The swimmers stood in the water or just on shore, waiting for the customary loud blast of the bullhorn that marks the beginning of one of the longest freshwater freestyle swims in the Northwest. The Long Bridge Swim is largely a non-competitive swim, with many participants hoping just to make it to the other side of the lake as safely and quickly as they can. Other swimmers have different, more competitive aspirations. The first mile was the hardest, Shauna admits. She did the crawl, breaststroke, and backstroke to keep going. Unzipping her wetsuit top allowed her more breathing capacity. She made sure to wave assurances that she was fine in the water 
to her husband and friends walking the Long Bridge as spectators. Even though the one-mile marker seemed so far away, Shauna says, I never had the feeling I couldn't make it. There was always a community volunteer in a safety canoe or kayak close by if she needed help or an allowable brief rest. Once past the halfway point, Shauna says the rest of the swim was easy to the end. Striding out of the water at Dog Beach, she gave a knowing smile to the woman next to her in her late 60s. Shauna finished faster than half of the people swimming that day. Only five swimmers, ages 8 to 13, did not complete the course. It took Shauna, then 58, one hour and 16 minutes to do the swim. The fastest swimmer that year was a 49-year-old man from Montana who crossed the lake in just under 35 minutes. Wow! Will Shauna Perry attempt to do the Long Bridge swim again? But of course, she says without hesitation, and she has every year since. Bayview to City Beach Swim Sand Point may be home to the Long Bridge Swim, where hundreds of people take to the water every August and swim almost two miles to Dog Beach. But imagine swimming the length of Lake Ponderay, from Bayview north to Sand Point. During the summer of 2007, 11 buff swimmers, ranging in age from 13 to 59 years, and selected by Eric Ridgway, the Long Bridge Swim founder, did exactly that. It took them only 17 hours as they swam in a relay arrangement with each swimmer doing three rounds in the water. Beginning at Buttonhook Bay in the south in the afternoon, the swimmers made it to City Beach just in time to see the sunrise over the Cabinet Mountains. The night portion of the swim was reported to be the most memorable hours in the water with some of them feeling like they were swimming into nothing. A glow stick affixed to the goggles of each swimmer, following a lead kayak also aglow, was the only light along the 36-mile course. But perhaps the person most exhausted from this historic swim was Sandpoint businessman Ernie Bellwood. He captained his houseboat, which was the expedition's base of operation. By the time the swimmers reached City Beach, Bellwood had been awake for 28 hours straight. In subsequent years, this core group of swimming aficionados undertook more historic, unprecedented swims. In July 2008, the Crazy Lake swimmers departed from Kramer's Marina in Hope, swam across the mouth of the Clark Fork River, then south along the east shoreline of Lake Ponderay until the southernmost point, at Buttonhook Bay. After jumping off the rope swing there, they headed back north along the western shoreline of the lake to City Beach and back to Hope, completing an 84-mile circumnavigation over two days and two nights of continuous swimming. The following year in August, their attempt to swim from City Beach to Buttonhook Bay and back, a swim of about 68 miles, was blown apart by excessive winds that threatened the accompanying houseboat. They changed course after swimming about 10 miles and instead headed west down the Ponderay River, almost all the way to Laclede. This contingency plan swim 
encompassed about 44 miles. This same group of swimmers planned to continue to splash around different courses in these exceptionally clean lake waters with the majestic mountains surrounding them wherever they go. Fishtails, bluebacks for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Sandy Hogsey Belote couldn't eat fish for a very long time after working for her parents at Sandpoint's former pastime cafe. Leonard and Helen Hogsey owned what was the most popular downtown restaurant at the time. It was the early 1960s, and Sandy was in high school. Those years also marked the peak of commercial fishing in Lake Ponderay for kokanee salmon, or bluebacks, as the locals call them. The Hogses lived at Talachi and had contracted with a fisherman there to catch enough fish to serve in his Sandpoint Cafe all year round. The man took the challenge to heart and filled his small boat with hundreds of bluebacks that he caught seasonally fishing near the shore between Maiden Rock and Garfield Bay. Sandy recalls helping her mom clean countless buckets of those fish, literally hundreds of kokanee a day, which her dad would then freeze in the giant lockers of the restaurant until needed. The pastime offered bluebacks on the daily menu, breakfast, lunch, and supper time, a popular meal for tourists and locals. Sandy soon tired of eating the tasty fish, or any fish for that matter. I didn't like the bluebacks much, she now recalls, but it wasn't just the hours of tedious work. The silvery salmon also got in the way of Sandy's social life during high school. Her closest friend, Ginger Evans, whose dad smoked tons of kokanee for shipping by rail to cities east and west of Sandpoint, also had chores in preparing the fish for smoking. The two young women had to have all the fish processed before they could go to a school dance or a movie at the Panada Theater. Evans' smokehouse still can be found at the southwest corner of Lakeshore Drive and Highway 95 near the Long Bridge, a reminder of the once-abundant fishery that existed here. Lore Along the Shore, Kalispell History Even during Aboriginal times, Sandpoint had sandy beaches. Today's City Beach and Sand Creek were culturally important to American Indians as a late spring camp and summer village site of the Upper Kalispell. Called Kwakwape, the name translates from the Salish language as the place of sand. The creek was fished for food by the villagers, and after David Thompson's arrival in 1809, native peoples trapped a beaver here for trade. As recently as the 1940s, the upper and lower Kalispell bands, now living on Indian reservations in Montana and Washington, were joined by the Bonners Ferry Kootenai people to camp at traditional Kalispell sites in Sandpoint. There are non-Indians here in Sandpoint who still remember the native peoples playing their traditional gambling game called the stick game. The unique style of drumming and singing of ancient songs heard so long ago on the sandy shores of Sandpoint still resonate today within the walls of the tribe's Thule House in Usk, Washington. Even though Kalispell tribal members don't frequent this area much today, 
it remains an important part of their heritage. This is an excerpt from Chapter 15, Ripples in Time, A Glimpse at White Settlement on Lake Ponderay, by Marianne Love. From Gandhi Dancers to River Pigs. Small local railroad lines extending to the logging camps in drainages like Pack River, Gold Creek, and Grouse Creek to the east, and Carr Creek to the west, contributed significantly toward transporting logs to one giant mill pond called Lake Ponderay. The timber industry became a dominant force in the 1890s, and especially during the Humbird Lumber Company era from the early 1900s until 1931. By 1900, upper Midwest forests were nearly exhausted, so when word of plentiful western white pine spread to lumber barons with names like Humbird, Deary, eventually Potlatch Corporation, and Warehouser, they wasted no time coming west to establish their presence in pre-designated areas. Humbird purchased the Sandpoint Lumber Company mill in 1899 and Kootenay's Ellersick mill in 1903. The owners operated a state-of-the-art facility for the times. The need to harvest trees for lumber and matches brought on a new breed of rough and tough workers, ranging from sawyers and teamsters to river pigs who worked the log drives along fast-moving, dangerous rivers. Cross-cut saws, peavies, caulk boots with high water pants held up by suspenders, mill ponds, chutes, and flumes became a part of the local vernacular. Virtually all aspects of logging were dangerous. Many men died or were crippled from woods-related accidents. Logging camps, complete with laundry facilities and well-supplied cook shacks, served as homes to hundreds of lumberjacks for five days a week. Trees were cut, limbed, and later decked with the power of horse teams. Some trees were branded to identify the logging company, dumped in rivers and herded downstream by river pigs. In other cases, narrow-gauge railroads consisting of geared-down Shea locomotives lugging loaded flat cars down steep grades hauled logs from the mountains to the lake where they would be stored in brails, basically a log and cable fence line surrounding other loose logs, and later towed by steamers to the larger mills in Kootenay, Sandpoint, Dover, Laclede, or Priest River. Ed Elliott and his Northern Navigation Company crew began towing log booms for lumber companies in 1919. Along the shoreline at Hope, Kootenay, and Sandpoint, where sailboats and motorized craft now rest in marina slips. Expansive reddish-brown seas of logs floated in protective lake water. The water kept the logs from drying out and becoming checked, and it was the only way to move the logs into the mill in that era. Eventually, the logs were processed and shipped by rail to other parts of the country. Humbird built a railroad dock, extending hundreds of feet out over the lake, Doug Thurlow explained in History of Bonner County, in order for trains to be able to drive out and unload logs into the water. 
The huge presence of Humbird Lumber Company in Sandpoint and Kootenai signaled assurance that the timber industry was here to stay. With 20,000 acres of timberland purchased from the Northern Pacific, jobs were plentiful. The mill employed more than 350 men. Housing was in demand. Sandpoint became a Humbird Company town as its economy thrived and it received distinction as the lumbering capital of Idaho. Whether it was the 1929 Wall Street crash, the gradual depletion of white pine in the area, or a general loss of profits, the Humbirds left Sandpoint and moved on to Canada. The logging industry slowed considerably during the next decade, as did most everything during the Great Depression years. The Dust Bowl brought droves of new settlers from the Midwest to northern Idaho by rail. Many of these transplants, with strong rural roots, transformed stump branches into working farms, establishing an agricultural industry in the area. Road building also began around the lake, especially with help from the Civilian Conservation Corps. This ushered in yet another new era. Motorized logging trucks could reach areas once served by the small railroads and horse teams. Steamboat travel turned virtually obsolete. World War II and the need for supplies and the subsequent post-war baby boom housing demand breathed renewed energy into the timber industry. A couple of Spokane brothers, Jim and Larry Brown, capitalized on these demands and built a logging empire throughout eastern Washington, Canada, and Montana, lasting nearly 50 years. Jim Brown, Jr. moved to Sandpoint and started his successful lumbering career with sinkers. In 1940, he established Deadhead Logging Company along Sand Creek by retrieving logs that absorbed too much water and sank to the bottom. From there, Brown's empire took off eventually expanding to 15 mills. One of those mills at Dover operated at the same site as the A.C. White Mill, where today's Dover Bay waterfront community continues to unfold. Besides producing lumber, the Dover Mill served as a research facility for Jim Brown, who was always looking for production efficiency with logs. In the 1950s, the term Tenex eventually became a fixture locally as an addition to the mill began producing the particle board product by compressing wood shavings with steam-operated pressure and applying a resin coating. Brown's daughter, Bobby Huguenin, said the process was the first of its kind in the wood industry. The mill employed hundreds of people for four decades before closing in the early 1990s. Pack River Lumber Company continually diversified its interests, and Jim Brown would influence a rapidly growing recreational and tourist industry through his ownership of Schweitzer Mountain Resort. A poem by William Studebaker from Idaho's Poetry, a Centennial Anthology, 1988. Sandpoint. Old Lady Wile came here rough as an Iowa cob, but the years pushed against her like waves, wearing her skin smooth as the beach 
she hobbles down to town. And old man Deshawn sits in his 64 Ford, counting his four missing fingers, remembering when he set chokers with one hand. So many dreams have drowned in this lake. The fish get bigger each year, and tonight a young logger takes old Lady Wiles' granddaughter out on the point, holds her, raising his arm with four good fingers towards a fish rising to swallow the white lure of the moon, knotted to a string, buoyed to the rest of their lives. Anecdota Back to the Future One of Pat Moon's earliest boating memories helped shape his philosophy on life. His family owned a 10-foot aluminum boat with a three-horsepower outboard motor, and Pat, at age eight, was allowed to take the boat out alone and freely go anywhere from their dock at Rocky Point in Dover, as long as he remained in sight of his parents. This remarkable freedom came with an expectation of taking responsibility for one's actions, and it engendered self-respect as well as a respect for the life in and around the lake. With such liberties, Pat came to know and deeply love Lake Ponderay, the surrounding countryside, and its people. What an adventurous environment in which to grow up. Pat would pick up his friend Kevin Cogswell on a nearby dock, and they would go from Rocky Point across to Springy Point and back to what Pat calls the Dover Bluffs. He says back in the 1960s, Dover was a mill town, and some of the kids that lived there were tough characters, so they had to be careful not to get ambushed. With the boat eventually full of young boys, they would go to any number of little beaches and swim and explore. By the time Pat turned 10, his family had a bigger boat with a 10-horsepower motor that expanded his horizons. I could go anywhere, Pat says, but if I didn't tie up the boat right when I got back, I was in trouble. In those days, he and his friends would camp on the shores and have the kind of natural world experiences that author Patrick McManus writes about in his humorous books. When Pat Moon became a teenager, he ventured farther from home, taking to the river in the family boat for a springtime fishing trip to Morton Slough or to Muskrat Point to hunt ducks and geese. Besides the moon's aluminum boat, there was the barge, a rickety raft that had a cabin on top, which his brother Pete owned. It was given to Pete by a neighbor at Rocky Point. The log deck rode barely above the surface, and if there were four or five kids on it, a corner would usually slip underwater. Pat considers this watercraft and the adventures they had on it his Huckleberry Finn stage of life. Their dad, Bud, put a small outboard motor on the raft, and they would go slowly along. The kids would take turns diving off the deck and swimming alongside. It would take them an hour and a half to go from Rocky Point to pick up a friend across the lake at the end of the Long Bridge. Then we'd go someplace else and pick up a fourth person and go camp somewhere along the shoreline, says Pat. 
He says area landowners were neighborly and very tolerant of boys who wanted to play on their lakefront beach. The world was different then. People respected elders. Everyone knew everyone else, so you didn't get away with anything. In the winter, the kids built snow forts along the shoreline and would ice skate until their toes got cold or until they would build a bonfire on shore to warm themselves. Pat remembers one particular exhilarating moonlit night when the ice in the protected bays was as smooth as glass and he skated for hours on end. Once, when he was a little older, he cross-country skied along the shoreline halfway to Laclede. One of the other highlights of being a boy growing up on the water was the large new dock with a high-dive springboard that his dad built one summer. During summer vacation, all the kids of the neighborhood would come over to swim, dive, and play games on the dock all day long. They could also visit rope swings that locals maintained along the shoreline from Springy Point to Laclede. These were great for swinging out over the lake and dropping into the cool water on a hot summer day. It was a carefree and simple life, Pat says. I didn't realize until I grew up just how great I had it. Once Pat got married and moved to Sagal, he would take his family by canoe on Sunday afternoons and paddle from Springy Point to Dover Bluffs. Nowadays, he and his family only go paddling in the spring and fall because of all the boating activity on the lake and river. With all the new lakeshore and riverbank developments, Pat says he feels more like a tourist these days than a native son. Another rite of passage was, of course, fishing. His dad would motor downriver towards Priest River, and together they would catch 14 to 18-inch rainbows all day long. Today, the trout are replaced by smallmouth bass, Pat says. But back then, there weren't many bass around. Today, Pat Moon has nine grandchildren. He acknowledges with a heavy sigh that times have definitely changed. With the restrictive atmosphere of today's private properties and gated lakeshore communities, boys and girls have less freedom to explore this wilderness of water called Lake Ponderay. There are far fewer places to discover the inside and outside of oneself or to develop philosophies on the good life. Sometimes I think I know how the Indians must have felt, Pat says. I've lost access to all the hunting spots, picnicking spots, fishing spots we had as kids. Now there are too many houses along the shore and a real loss of the rural character that this area once had. The ancient Celts believed that in some places the veil between heaven and earth was thinner than in other spots. Time should be spent looking for those places and catching glimpses of the beauty and joy of heaven. Sadly, people today want to put their homes in such places, Pat says. He would like to see what's left of paradise be preserved. Many of us who have lived here long enough to appreciate the lake's unique and remarkable values agree with him. 
Jane Fritz has been reading from her book, Legendary Lake Pondore, Idaho's Wilderness of Water, published in 2010 by Keoki Books of Sandpoint, Idaho. The Bookshelf is a production of Spokane Public Radio. With Vern Wyndham, I'm co-producer Nancy Roth.